Genesis 1.1 begins how? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now, uh, other than seven of you, the rest of you say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Jehovah God speaks. Actually, we know from Colossians, it was Jesus Christ was the creative one. Colossians 1 tells us. And Jesus speaks, and with his words, light and water and sky and land and trees and stars and birds and fish and livestock, and finally, Adam and Eve, mankind. Wow, what a beginning as we get the Bible beginning, not with a bang, but with God Almighty speaking all of life into existence out of Nothing. Ex nihilo is the fancy word there. Now, when we get to uh, Act 2, we would call that the New Testament. I suppose uh, we're going to get something just as amazing, right? When we finally go uh, from the Old Testament, there's 400 years of silence between the last of the Old Testament prophets and Matthew. Now, when we come into New, it's going to be something brilliant, don't you think? Right? Eh? Yeah? Yeah? Canadian? Yeah, amazing. Maybe a billion, billion angels singing the Alleluia chorus. Do you think? Or maybe James Earl Jones will step up and there's a microphone and there's speakers all over the world. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's going to be really amazing, don't you think? Uh, so anyway, let's... Let's go with me in, in your Bibles or on your phones, Matthew chapter 1, and let's see how God in His infinite wisdom chooses to begin the New Testament. If you're able, would you stand with me? Um, Matthew chapter 1, and trust me when I tell you this, I'm giving you a present now. You can read along with me and I'll actually read it out loud, okay? And uh, while I stumble through all these names, you can laugh and giggle and say, wow, he's not a very good reader, is he? No, no, not really. But here we go. Uh, verse 1, uh, if you want to read with me, you can, but uh, I'd encourage you. Some of it gets pretty crazy. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, 
Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of, yeah, yeah, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elikam, Elikam, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Woo! We made it. Yes, give yourself a hand if you read. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your book. It's alive and living, and you inspired Matthew to write down these words exactly as you had in mind. Thank you for preserving them down through the centuries. Lord, they're trustworthy, they're sure, they're true, they're alive. Lord, they have the ability to keep our lives on track, to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us as your children. May these words we just heard come alive today in your church. May the power of your word and the power of your spirit be welcomed today in your church. May that combination come and help us to hear clearly today from you. May the King of the New Testament, the Messiah, the Christ, be seen and honored and glorified in your church today. And all the church family at Walloon Lake said with one united voice, Genealogies in the Bible were a big deal. Um, the book of Genesis has nine different genealogies. The book of First Chronicles has 17 chapters devoted to family trees. Ezra and Nehemiah loaded with the names of people in their families. So you need to understand this is all over the Bible, but it begins the New Testament in a pretty strange way. Would you not agree? Genealogies at this time were used to decide inheritance rights, to make land allotments, to organize censuses, which is why Mary and Joseph needed to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 1 Kings 11.36 tells us that royalty and credentials of the Messiah are linked to being in the lineage of King David. We looked at that the last couple of weeks. That's why the New Testament begins, if you look at verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Clearly shows that Jesus fit the fingerprint requirements of the Messiah. Matches it perfectly. 2 Samuel 7.16, Isaiah 11.1. Sure enough, Jesus was in the lineage Dad's side in Matthew, mom's side in Luke, to King David. 
Genesis 22.18, the Lord promises Abraham that through you, the descendants of the world are going to be blessed. And sure enough, that's exactly what Galatians 3.16 tells us. Through Abraham, Jesus came in that lineage as well. So we have descendants of King David, and that's what verse 1 says. Now look at Matthew 1 and verse 2. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yes, the patriarchs uh, expected. But then look at verse 3. It's interesting. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was, what's the name there? Matthew sticks a woman's name in the genealogy, and that's unusual. Almost never are there any women's names. And the woman's name he sticks in is Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. Uh, if you want, turn back with me in your Bibles or on your phone. Uh, I give you a little warning. Uh, Genesis 38 is rated PG-13, maybe even R, okay? Okay, Jacob has 12 sons. His favorites were Joseph and Benjamin. Do you remember that? But the lineage of Jesus doesn't run through Joseph and Benjamin. The lineage, the genealogy of Jesus runs back through Judah. And Genesis 38 is Judah's chapter. Uh, someone said families are a lot like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. Judah was the nutty one of Jacob's 12 kids. Okay? Judah married a Canaanite woman and his kids are wicked. Uh, the oldest son is so wicked, Genesis 38, 7, the Lord puts him to death. And you could kind of tell by his name. It was Ur. Uh, so the Lord just Urs him to death. Then the next brother, Onan, marries Ur's widow. He was required to do that, Deuteronomy 25. But he refuses to have children with Tamar. Verse 10, so the Lord kills him too. Judah says, I don't think I'm going to risk any more of my son. So he refuses to give his next son to Tamar, so she's stuck. Got it? She, she has no rights. She's kind of in limbo, no legal rights at this time. So she takes matters into her own hands. Judah comes back from shearing the sheep. He's got a pocket full of money, at least she thinks. Uh, Judah comes into town. Now listen, are you ready? So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. And as she comes in, she covers her face and she propositions Judah for her services sexually. You got it? That's her father-in-law who refused to give her the next son. It's dark. She's veiled. He doesn't know who it is. Judah sleeps with Tamar. He's out of cash. He goes for money. I don't have any so he gives her his staff and his cord and his seal as a promise. You're going to get your money. Uh, I'll come back and pay you, and then you give me my stuff back. Do you understand? It's kind of like giving somebody your driver's license. Tamar gets pregnant from her time with her father-in-law with twins. And then Judah catches wind of it. The uh, widowed daughter-in-law of yours, Tamar, she's pregnant. And he's so enraged and so self-righteous, 
38.24, he says, bring her out. Bring her out right now. We're going to have her burned to death before all of you. Normally, you would just stone someone. But I'm telling you, Judah is extra righteous, self-righteous, and indignant. So he's going to burn her to death. So as she's being dragged away to be killed, flames are crackling. Got the picture up there? 3825, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she holds up the seal, the cord, and the staff. I don't know about you, but I don't remember this story in Sunday school growing up. Never had a flannel graph of Genesis 38. (laughs) Fast forward, if you want to, go to Revelation 5 and verse 5. Jesus opens the seal, last book of the Bible, which begins the events of history to a close. And the elders see Jesus and say, See, the lion of the tribe of who? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll. Question, why, oh why, John, would you include the line of the tribe of Judah, as the conclusion of the world is brought together by Jesus Christ. And Matthew, go back, Matthew, why on earth, verse 3, would you bring up this awful history lesson, the sordid and sinful story? Why not just jump over and skip over Genesis 38? And the answer Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And right from the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew is shouting, Jesus came to seek and save sinners just like Judah, just like Tamar. Real clear. Jesus is coming to earth to save sinners just like you. Back to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, what's the second woman's name mentioned here? Rahab. Anybody remember what Rahab's occupation was? She was a prostitute. She sold her body sexually for money. She didn't just dress up like a prostitute like Tamar did. That was her job to sell her body for money. Um, Of the eight times Rahab is mentioned in Scripture, six of the eight times it says Rahab the prostitute. Joshua 2, a woman, a Gentile woman who is a prostitute, is now here, look at it, verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now think of the women that he could... He could have mentioned Sarah or Rachel or Rebecca. They don't have these sordid uh, stories uh, or occupations. But no, he mentions Tamar and then he mentions Rahab. Here's what you need to know. Most genealogies skip over the scoundrels and the nuts. But that's not what you hear You see here, usually you only focus on the saints, only on the good guys and the good gals make the list. 
But Matthew doesn't gloss over or sugarcoat the great sinners in Jesus' genealogy. Matter of fact, he kind of goes out of his way to emphasize the sinners, the misfits. Why? Because Jesus' purpose for coming to earth was what? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus' purpose, his reason, his mission was to seek and save lost sinners in this world just like you, just like me. Next verse, verse 6, Matthew chapter 1. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, there's lots of ways you could describe King David other than this, right? You could say David, who as a young teen was the one who defeated the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. Or David was a man after God's own heart. Or David, the writer of many of the Psalms. Or David, Israel's greatest king. But look at verse 6. I want you to notice, how does he describe David? David, who committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then had him murdered. (laughs) Matthew begins the New Testament by announcing that Jesus is in the business of using sinners. Jesus Christ, his plan and his purpose was to come for great sinners like you and like me. He specializes in seeking and saving the lost. I read this uh, seven years ago. I'm going to read it again. Speaker, writer, Tony Campalo was in Hawaii, and uh, if you come from Philadelphia where he lives, and you fly all the way to Hawaii, it gets you messed up as far as time changes. And he says it's 3.30 in the morning, but as far as he could tell, his stomach thought it was 8.30. About 3.30 in the morning, Tony writes, I found my way to a diner. And the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on both sides of me. Their talk was loud and crude, and I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. I was just telling you it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony writes, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited till the women left. Then I called to the guy behind the counter. I said, do they come in here every night? Yeah. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She comes here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say tomorrow's her birthday. I told him, "Uh, what do you say you and I do something about that? What do you say we don't throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? 
the guy loved the idea. He, he told his wife, she said, that's wonderful. Agnes is one of those people who's really kind and nice. No one ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I said, if it's okay, I'll come back tomorrow morning about 2.30 a.m. We'll decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up crepe paper, decorations, made a sign on a big piece of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out in the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. There were wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. And I had everybody ready. And when they all came in, we screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs buckled, her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. She was led to one of the stools by the counter while we all sang Happy Birthday to her. When we came to the end of singing, Happy Birthday, dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then with the birthday cake and all the candles on it, she lost it. She just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow them out. After a few endless seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife. Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked at the cake, then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, if, if it's all right with you, I mean, I, I want is it okay if I take the cake and, and don't cut it? For I mean, is it okay if I don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Can I, Agnes asked. Then looking at me, she said, I just live down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be, I'll be back right, right away, honest. She got up off the stool, picked up that cake, carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked slowly towards the door. And we all just stood there motionless as she left. When the doors closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems a little strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments where just the right words come, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry paused for a moment, then almost sneered. He said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. 
Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Can I tell you that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create? (laughs) Somehow we've gotten so prim and so proper, but anybody who reads the New Testament realizes that Jesus came out to earth, took on a human body to hang with the sinners of this world, the messed up, the nobodies. And I want you to know, my, my desire is that Walloon would be a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I want us as a church to not forget that we're all big-time sinners. Sometimes after you're a follower of Christ for a while, the, the Lord cleans you up and now suddenly now you look at sinners and you say, I don't know that I want anything to do with them. Matthew is shouting here at us, reminding us Jesus came to earth for the Judas and the Tamars and their sordid sinful fling that resulted in twins. Jesus came to earth to seek and to save big-time sinners like us. Matthew is shouting, verse 5, when he includes Rahab, the prostitute, the Gentile prostitute. He came to earth for the prostitutes of this world. And Matthew is shouting when King David does his huge belly flop with Bathsheba. And he not only commits adultery, but commits murder, murdering her husband. Jesus came to earth for adulterers and murders, for great sinners like you and like me. So if that's Jesus' mission statement, if Jesus' purpose for coming to earth was to seek and to save sinners, what do you suppose our purpose should be? Any guesses? If that's the reason Jesus took on human form was to seek and to save sinners, what should our mission statement be? Go ahead, tell me. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. And what's my purpose? To seek and to save sinners, just like Jesus did. And oh yeah, by the way, if you're one of those people who's done a whole lot of belly flops in life, Maybe you're thinking here, you know, I think I'm too far gone. I think I've uh, sinned too greatly for Jesus to want anything to do with me. Can I just point you to Judah and Tamar? Can I just point you to Rahab? Can I just point you to David and Bathsheba? Jesus came to seek and to save sinners like them. And like you and me as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for specializing and caring for and coming to earth for sinners like me, for sinners like all of us. And there's two extremes, and and Satan would love to have you run to one extreme or another. I'm a good, nice, moral person. 
I'll save myself. That's a lie. There was only one perfect, only one qualified to earn salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. And the other extreme that Satan would love to get you to run to, and maybe this is you, I'm too far gone, I'm too bad, I'm too sinful for Jesus to love and forgive. Anyone here today say, you know what? I'm a great sinner, but today I recognize that Jesus is a great Savior. And He's able to even forgive all of my sin, all of my belly flops. I've missed the mark again and again. But you know what? If He could come to seek and to save sinners like Judah and Tamar, to seek and to save sinners like Rahab, to seek and to save sinners like David and Bathsheba. Jesus, you can save me too. And I'm ready to say yes to you today by faith. Anybody say that's me? I think I was believing that lie too far gone, but today I recognize that's a lie. Jesus, I need you to save me. Anybody lift up your hand and say, that's me. I need Jesus. Yes. Anybody else? I need Jesus to seek and to save sinful me. Anybody else? We've got uh, some of our leaders here at church. And they're going to make their way around. Maybe you've believed that lie. You're feeling really sinful today. They're, they're going to make their way out to the sides of the aisle. And if uh, you'd like somebody to pray with you, to help introduce you to this Jesus who can save sinners, you, you just uh, come and allow them to pray with you, to pray over you, to rejoice with you. And if you need a Bible, they'll be happy to get your Bible. They're going to rejoice in Jesus working powerfully in your life. Lord, thank you for loving us. Forgive us for taking our eyes off the ball, for getting what priority one is, which is to seek and to save sinners. That's why you came to earth, Lord, and to help that to be the priority that we place in our life as number one. As we go to work and school in our neighborhoods, Lord, help us to watch out for the people around us who need Jesus. Thank you for putting on human skin to save big-time sinners.